Hi, welcome to Conversations with Cassie. And if you haven't listened to us before or haven't listened to us in a while, I'm Cassie, the host of the show, and we are super excited to have you with us today. Today, we are going to touch on a few random places, places that when you're introduced to them properly, kind of make you go, hmm. And we're going to talk about that a little bit and why some of these places seem out of place and more importantly, out of time to a degree. Some of them you may have heard of, some of them you may not have heard of, and that's okay. It's a great thing to learn about new things, at least I think so. So, and hopefully you are learning new things when you tune in with us each week. That is our goal. Anyway, moving into the meat of the episode, let's start in South America. And actually, three of the five places I'm hoping to talk about today are on the continent of South America. So hopefully, like I said, if you aren't familiar with all of them, then we will get you interested in them and you might pursue some research on them on your own. The first is what I'm actually going to call the most famous because I do believe it's a site that's probably more likely to be known by more people than the other two sites in South America. And that's the Nazca Lines on the Nazca Desert High Plateau. And the Nazca Plateau is a very unique, one-of-a-kind environment in the world. It has basically no rain. It's considered by some to be the most arid place in the world. It also has basically no wind. And that's a good thing for us because if it had wind or rain, then we would lose the thing that makes Nazca one of the most spectacular and amazing places on the planet. And that's its geometric and animalistic petroglyphs that have baffled researchers as long as they've been known. And ironically, they have not been known to researchers for that long of a period, less than a hundred years. And the reason being that most of these glyphs are so immense in size that you cannot see them when you're standing among them. You either need to be on one of the elevated rises on the plateau in order to get some sense of seeing some of the lines. It's actually much easier and gives you a much more complete picture if you're able to view the plateau from the air. And this need to view the plateau with due respect being from the air has, of course, attracted the attention of certain people that kind of want to credit all of our ancestors' accomplishments and wonderments to aliens. Just to touch on it very, very briefly, because that's not kind of a topic for our podcast at all. It's not a matter of belief or disbelief. It's a matter that I do not believe or have not been convinced that the evidence presented by members of the ancient astronaut theory, they haven't convinced me yet. They need to do a lot better research and and come up with more evidence for me to be convinced of the possibility that some of our most sacred sites and some of our best inheritances from our ancient ancestors actually come from someone else 
I am more along the lines of Mr. Hancock, who believes that our ancient ancestors were more than capable of creating these wonders and passing them down to us. That being said, the Nazca lines, as I said, have not been studied for as much time or as in-depth as some of the other inheritances that we have been given. One of the things that makes the Nazca lines unique, other than their size, are some of the creatures that make up some of the designs. The Nazca Plateau is several hundred kilometers from the ocean. It is several hundred meters above sea level. It was not a maritime community location, yet some of the more famous glyphs would question that. One of the most famous being a glyph of a well. Not something that you would expect prehistoric man high in the Andes to be knowledgeable about or to have any desire to commemorate the existence of wells to their collective memory. Other uh, creatures that seem a little bit out of place, at least for our understanding of the geographic and ecological history of Nazca, would be a beautiful glyph of a monkey, a beautiful glyph of a hummingbird in flight, And then one that can kind of be argued that's pretty famous is a superb rendering of a arachnid, a spider, with one of its legs actually morphing into a geometric design. A majority of the glyphs are geometric in construction and design, yet they are interspersed with these designs of other animals. And as I said, this is a recent, this was a 20th century discovery when a gentleman who was flying over the location on his regular travels, looking out the window as most of us do when we fly, noticed them and convinced his pilot to deviate from course and return to the area. And he was able to actually witness, document, and report on what he saw on the ground beneath him. So we've known about the Nazca lines for roughly a hundred years. Not much time compared to a lot of other things. Recently, though, there were a couple research teams with some of our new high-tech, non-invasive machinery that went down to do surveys of the Nazca lines because unfortunately, they are a high risk for degradation and destruction by actually the people that should be responsible them the most, locals. There is the Pan American Highway that runs through the middle of the Nazca Plateau, and for no apparent reasons, because it's not a highly traversed road, sometimes drivers, usually truckers, will go off of the road and just drive across the plateau, and in a lot of instances, driving across the plateau actually puts them in the position of driving across some of the Nazca lines and destroying them. Fortunately, the government does have a law against that. And when they are able to catch drivers doing that, they are pretty good about prosecuting them.
them and punishing them. But unfortunately, the problem with that is, is that obviously the damage has already been done once they commit the act. One of the interesting things about the construction of the lines is that due to the arid environment and to the soil content, the top of the soil has been basically rusted. So it has a dark reddish brown color to it. Yet basically if you just kind of scuff the dirt with like the toe of your shoe or your hand or a little scoop and just take away the first few millimeters of the top, you get a much lighter and brighter soil underneath. And that's how the Nazca lines were actually constructed. This rusted dirt has been removed and it shows the lighter, brighter soil underneath creating the artistic images that we refer to as the Nazca lines. Some of the lines that are quite literally lines go for hundreds of meters in straight lines across the plateau. There seems to be no rhyme or reason for the layout of the designs, but with the new research, new designs were actually discovered, and these new designs were actually on the sides of some of the hills and bordering mountains to the plateau. And these were glyphs that had never been seen or documented prior to. And several of them are animalistic in nature. And so it'll be interesting to see once they get them cataloged and recorded and then published what the new lines and the new glyphs actually resemble. Lots of people have called them everything from irrigation canals to, of course, the ancient alien theorist who believe that they're runways for our alien ancestors. If we have alien ancestors, I give them a little more credit that if they can fly through space, they don't actually need lines on the earth to guide them in. But as I said, that's not part of this podcast other than showing you the wide spans of extremities in the theories that are out there and There's lots of theories in between. One of the ones that I think is probably one of the most credible ones is that someone suggested that maybe they were spiritual. We used to have labyrinths and gardens that were meditative and you walked the path while you meditated or while you communed with your spirit, your ancestors, whatever spirituality, religious practice you were involved in. And I think there's a possibility that that might be a good theory to pursue in regards to the Nazca lines. Staying fairly close in South America, we have a couple sites that you could almost call sister sites, and that is the site of Pumapunku and Titicaca. And Lake Titicaca has the prestige of being, if not the highest, one of the highest lakes in the world. It is very high in the Andes and it is inland. As a matter of fact, it borders Peru and Bolivia. So not coastal at all. However, the lake itself has some unique features, one of which is the fact that Lake Titicaca is the home home and only known location of freshwater seahorses. And that's kind of an anomaly. How did seahorses ever get into the lake, especially when it's apparently not something that has ever occurred anywhere else that we know
know of on the planet. The second is that the city of Tiwanaka, which is considered a port city to Lake Titicaca, at its current location is actually 12 miles from the shore and a few meters above the shoreline of the lake in present day and what most believe the lake has been at for a few thousand years at least, which seems kind of impractical to have a port town on a lake. And Lake Titicaca is a huge lake, so having a a port town on the lake in and of itself is not something that should seem surprising to anyone. But what is surprising is the fact that this port city is actually 12 miles from the shoreline. That makes it a kind of a little inconvenient, especially if you start referring to prehistoric times. Puma Punku is very closely related and located near Tiwanaka. A matter of fact, some people actually consider Puma Punku to be the harbor port part of Tiwanaka. What is interesting about Puma Punku in regards to some of the other anomalies that we just talked about. Puma Punku was a stone-built city, as most ancient cities were, with huge megalithic stones being the building blocks of the city. And yet, when you go there today, it basically looks like it was made out of paper mache and someone just walked right through it and ripped it apart. And there is supposedly no geologic reason in the times that historians give for the city existing for some natural catastrophe to have done this. And there's no damage. They weren't bombed into oblivion, so to speak. Rocks are just ripped apart, pushed over, falling down, laying in heaps. It looks more like an earthquake or some other natural disaster destroyed the structures. Yet, again, as I stated, according to geologists, in the time frame that historians put on Pumapunku, there was no geologic activity of a magnitude to cause the damage that you see at Pumapunku. So who's wrong? Are the geologists missing some natural catastrophe and very recent history? And or are the historians wrong about their dating of Pumapunku? In Tiwanaka, there have been some studies that suggest that the city was either built at or in use during or based on astronomical alignments that correspond to approximately 15,000. BC. Of course, that's a hard pill for scientists that study history and archaeological sites to swallow. Most of them considered the research to either be wrong or they just straight up ignore it. However, a German research team took the data that was collected by the original researcher, reviewed all of the calculations, all of the formulas, all of the raw data, and basically came up with the same answer. They were a little more cautious in how they presented it. They didn't say, yes, it has to be 15,000 years old. They said, yes, the math is right. <laughs> we're, not get, we're not going to step in it and say that the city 
creativity is any age. We're just going to tell you guys, we're mathematicians, we're physicists, we're astronomers, we're astrophysicists. We're the experts in this field and his equations and his math and his observations are correct. Do with it what you want. And of course, most historians, archaeologists, anthropologists have chosen to ignore it or play it down, which is a shame because obviously who would know about astronomical calculations, measurements, locations better? An anthropologist, an archaeologist, or a astronomer, astrophysicist? I'm more inclined to listen to the astronomer and astrophysicist when it comes to something like that. So those are our South American things that make you go, hmm. Now we're going to jump across the Pacific to the subcontinent of India. And actually, it's India-Pakistan area, the Indus Valley, to a city called Harappa. At least that's what we refer to the site as Harappa. What the indigenous people of the time called it is open to some debate. The thing that makes Harappa make you go, hmm, is a few things. There are some researchers who have found very, very high levels and evidence for extreme radiation at the site. As a matter of fact, previously there were delays in some of the excavation of the site and studying of the site due to the evidence found that was very suggestive to radiation from a nuclear source. So there was a lot of concern about the safety of anthropologists, archaeologists, and and other researchers getting into the site and being able to preserve and study the site. So that's the first thing. The second thing is Harappa appears, by what we know, what's been left behind, to have been what we would refer to today as a planned city. It wasn't built haphazard, which is the way a lot of ancient cities were. I mean, look look at Rome and London and Paris and you can see different growth spurts in the layouts of the cities. And you can tell that when they were first settlements and then became towns and then kept growing in prestige and size, that it wasn't always planned and and thought out. Uh, Harappa, on the other hand, appears to have been completely planned and thought out from the start. The streets are laid out in nice grid patterns. Most, if not all, of the homes are actually nice two-story homes, which is something very unusual for the even the historic time period that mainstream anthropologists and archaeologists give to Harappa, which is quasi-contemporous with Mesopotamia and Egypt. They consider the Indus Valley to have come along a little bit later, but not necessarily for us anyway, and for an introduction, not necessarily late enough to, to say that it wasn't contemporous with the other two civilizations. And from our best guess in the other two civilizations, you did not have two-story homes quote, for everyone. There might have been some of the elite and some of the priestly caste and, and palaces and stuff that had multiple stories, but it was not a city-wide characteristic. Another thing that was absolutely unique in the Indus Valley and was discovered at Harappa was the fact that Harappa actually had a sewage system and had basically indoor plumbing. And that's something that you don't see in other civilizations for millennia after that, at least not of the same technological level and skill as you see in Harappa. 
So there's a lot of enigmas in Harappa that most anthropologists and archaeologists don't know what to make of. And so a lot of times, a lot of these enigmas one of two things happen. Either there's a lot of pushback that it's wrong or it's been misinterpreted or it's somehow managed to be out of time and place. The other is that things that don't fit, things that they can't give an answer to, get ignored. And the funny thing is, is that a lot of these anomalies that get ignored and they get ignored as that, oh, well, this is just a fluke. This is the only one of its kind. We're going to ignore it. But when you start adding up all these individual anomalies, you find out that the anomalies actually outweigh the evidence that is used to support the current timeline and narrative of human history. And when that happens, when, when you have more anomalies and more ignored evidence, you know, on that side of the scale, than you do on the side of the scale that you're giving all the credit to that you're saying is, is accurate, you really need to stop and step back and say, we need to start over again from scratch. We need to look at all evidence with new eyes, with fresh eyes, without bias and we need to see if we need to change our timeline, change our narrative. Unfortunately, the academic world has become a dog-eat-dog world. You get tenure based on your research and your publications and there is this fear of losing all that security if you ever either admit you got it wrong, even if maybe you got it right at the time based on what you knew and what you had access to, or if someone else challenges you successfully about your theories or your study. So it makes academics, professional academics, incredibly close-minded and incredibly defensive when it comes to being open to modifying and reassessing what is known and what is supposed and what might be and shifting the paths of research that we're following and trying to get regular people to understand that and to maybe pick up where some academics are too scared to venture because they have too much to lose if they venture there and find something new or different. Independent researchers don't have that fear. Our tenure isn't on the line. Our ability to publish in academic journals isn't on the line because we're publishing in podcasts, in blogs, in self-published or published housing mass market books to get our information out there. And unfortunately, it would be nice. There is a push to try to... Even within the academic circles, there's a lot of research that's denied to other professionals. There's a lot of university libraries and there's a lot of museum archives and national archives and national libraries and all these repositories of all these artifacts and documents and research and studies that not only do you and I not have access to because we aren't affiliated with the right university or the right foundation or the right research group, but even among the professionals, they also have to be from the right university, from the right country, from 
the right dogma from you know, even they are restricted in what they have access to. And to me, that is a huge, huge crime to all of us. Any one of us should be able to approach any of these repositories and say, I would like to study this artifact or this document or whatever, just because I want to study it. You, you shouldn't have to give a reason for wanting to study it. You shouldn't have to provide proof that you're capable of studying it. Desire alone should be enough for you to get to study something. Now, do I think that all artifacts and documents and stuff should just be thrown out into the public? No, they're too precious for that. But I do believe that each and all of us can walk into these facilities and be instructed how to handle specific artifacts, how to handle specific documents, what we can and can't do, how we can and can't do, and be able to do the research that we want to do. Because in all honesty, if we're putting out the effort to find where a document is, make contact saying we wish to have access to the document, willing to travel to view the document, willing to do one of these courses where we learn how to properly handle then we've paid our dues. We've shown that we're committed. We've shown that we're interested. We've shown that we're serious. And unfortunately, that's not enough. And the irony is, is that most of these libraries and museums, their original charters forbid what they've become. The original charters stated that they were to be open access to everyone. And most of them have completely completely forgotten their roots and completely ignore their original charters and no longer provide full access to anyone who's interested. That's how we have so much information that has been forgotten about our past and our history and why we have artifacts in the news this week, the oldest tattoo equipment has been identified in Western North America, in the United States, in the Southwest, because it had laid in a box unknown for decades. Finally, someone got access to some of those artifacts and identified and verified the authenticity of them. And it laying around for only decades is nothing, nothing. There are boxes and crates and pallets and rooms full of artifacts and archives and documents in these repositories, like the Natural History Museum, the British Museum, that haven't even been cataloged. Who knows the information that we're sitting on that because maybe an expedition went bad or because someone didn't like the report that the researchers wrote when they got back from the expedition and so they just boxed it up and shoved it in an archive storage room in the basement because they didn't want to deal with something that made them uncomfortable, something that made them go, hmm, don't be like that. When something makes you go, hmm, use that, dust off your curiosity and figure it out. Find the puzzle pieces, put them together, make a new picture. That's what it's all about. That's the real story of us. Thank you for joining us. This is Cassie. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Have a great day.